All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it is my distinct pleasure today to host John David Mann, who has, forgive me, John, how many books have you written and uh, and ghostwritten and collaborated on? It, it's something north of 30. I'm not sure. Maybe call it 32 for now. We'll call it 32 for now. Um, and if you are any kind of business reader, uh, you know um, his, his work, uh, the go giver with, uh, with Bob Berg. Um, one of his most uh, recent was, uh, the latte factor with, um, Oh, for, forgive me. I, David Bach, David Bach, yep. um, like the composer. And then but, he's got, richer. <laughs> 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 and also not dead, which is a, a benefit. Yeah, I mean, if you had to choose between, you know, one or the other, between rich and not dead or dead and not rich, uh, yeah, I think I would I'd go with the former than the latter. There you go. Um, so John has graciously uh, agreed to take time out of his busy schedule because uh, he is quite busy with everything that he's got coming up with his awesome partnership with, um, with Brandon uh, Webb. Um, but I'm going to let him tell us all about that. So, John, um, why don't we start by talking about your uh, your awesome new new book, How to Write Good or at Least Gooder? <laughs> you know, this is like this is the first book I've done, which people respond immediately to the title. And always laugh. It's great. And, you know, it's like, what can I say? It's like, I feel like I'm Steve Martin or something. And I had the title for years before I had a book to go underneath the title. Um, How to Write Good, or at least Gooder. Uh, yeah, this is this is kind of a, a unique book among all the all the projects I've done. You know, just about every other project has been a partnership. I've, I've, written, I've co-written with somebody else, but Bob Berg, David Bach, Brandon Webb, different people from the business sector, from um, from, from other sectors too. But uh, how to write good is mine. It's just me. And it, it came about as a result of doing things like this, of being on podcasts, being on radio shows, interviews. And every now and then, you know, people would say, ask some question about the writing. It's like, how do you write this? What's it like? How, you know, what do you do first? Where does the idea come from? How do you take an idea and, and, and build it? How do you, you know, et cetera. How do you work with somebody else and get their ideas and meld them with your ideas? And how do you structure it? And how do you, what do you do about writer's block? And what do you do when you know your book isn't where it should be? And, you know, I love those questions. And I would find myself saying things because I never prepare for podcasts. I would find myself giving an answer and then go, oh, that was a good answer. I, I didn't know I knew that. <laughs> or I, I didn't know I thought that. And I've got to remember that. And every now and then I would take that, you know, I would, after the podcast, go write it down, jot down a note. And, and over the years, those notes kind of collected. And I finally thought, you know, I should put this in, like make a little ebook for people. So I, I started a little ebook and the little ebook turned into a 130 page full fledged book. Uh, and, you know, it's, I, I elected to publish it myself for free. It's not on Amazon. It's not a Barnes and Noble. It's not anywhere. It's like on my website, and that's it. Um, it is presently. It is a free ebook. People can just go download. Um, and I did that because it's you know for the moment it's like my love letter to writing and to writers and to my readers. And um, 
Yeah, it's just it's it's a labor of love. I put everything that I could think of at the moment about how to write. Maybe not great, but at least good. And you know, my thesis is not all of us are published writers, but most of us use words. And you know, some some of us do those in e- with keyboards on email and Facebook on Twitter even, uh, and all of that is is getting your thoughts and feelings and experiences funneled through this container called words to other people so they can somehow relate to it, connect with it. And, uh, you know, words are like, they have their own rules of the road. So I wanted to try to help people just write gooder. Well, give us some of the, um, you know, some of the, the, the gems, some of the little nuggets uh, that are in there. What, what are appetite? Well, the first thing is, you know, I, somewhere in chapter one, and it's book seven chapters. And in the, in the latter chapters, it gets more and more, I don't want to use the word technical, but let's say it gets more pragmatic as the book mm-hmm. goes on. You know, first the first few chapters, the first chapter is kind of an overview. What does it mean to be a writer? What's it like to be a writer? Second chapter goes into stories. What makes stories so compelling? Why do we love stories? What, what does a good story have to do? What does it have to do to be a good story? What is a character that works for a story? Uh, uh, what kind of stories sell and don't and why? Uh, a lot of hard-won, tear-stained lessons there. But then as the chapters go, I start chapter three, I think, is about money and, and writings for the business of writing. But as, right. it, as we get into it, the latter chapters are about how to take a sentence and make it a better sentence, how to take a paragraph and make it more powerful, really get into the nitty-gritty. One of the chapters, uh, I take the first page of The Go-Giver, which to date has been my most successful book. We just sold, we just passed the million copy mark. We've sold over a million copies. I saw that. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was pretty cool. We've been, that is... been watching the dial <laughs> waiting for that to happen. Um, uh, that's, so that's just the, the, the book, the go-giver. And so I, I started with that book because I still have my first draft of that book and it's God awful. I mean, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I'm not, this is not false modesty. This is truthful modesty. It kind of sucks, actually. And the proof of that is that it was rejected 22 times. And, and it wasn't purely. Really? It was. It was 22, 22 times. You got it, man. We took it out to uh, to New York, to publishers. And in one round, the first round, we took it out. And I tell this story briefly in the book. In the first round, this back in 2006, um, I think maybe like 16 or eight, something, 16, 18 publishers, some number over a dozen said, oh, it's, you know, nice story, but no. Or I kind of like it, but it's not what we're looking for, which is publishers speak for, see you later, Charlie. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. You know, you're out of here. <laughs> publishers, you know, an agent just recently told me publishers never tell you the real reason why they say no. I think that's an exaggeration because I think there are all clues. And and I actually ask my agent when, when I have a book that gets turned down and it happens a lot, I've had a lot of rejections from publishers. I always ask my agent, please let me know exactly what they said. If you can send me the email. And I don't know if other agents do this with other authors, but they do it with me because I've asked for it. I want to know exactly what, what the publisher said. I have whole collections uh, of, you know, I have documents where uh, I just had a book uh, get turned down I don't know, a handful of times, five, six, eight times, and then said yes. And that's going to be the next Go-Giver book, which is coming out next March. And, and I, I love the, these collections of what they say no, because I look for clues in there 
Um, and so, yeah, my agent friend might be right. Often they don't tell you the truth. They don't tell you that that this particular editor who's looking at your manuscript has just uh, given notice and they're actually going to go to another publisher. And they, or, you know, there's all kinds of internal political yeah. stuff going on you don't know about. Yeah. But I also believe that they there are there are useful clues in those rejections. And the go givers a case in point. Twenty two people said no in the first round and second round. And they were right to say no because the, the book. Damn it, wasn't ready. It, it just wasn't good. It wasn't gooder. It wasn't even good. Uh, uh, and, and we reworked it titanically to bring it to the point where it is today. Most of that reworking was removing words. You know, most of it was simplification. Uh, and, and most of my rewriting work, which is for me the craft of writing. You know, there's an art to writing and there's a craft. The art is the mysterious part where you snatch things out of the ether and I don't even know where they come from. And you, you know, you spend two hours. This is how it is for me. I spend two hours sitting in a chair with a blank pad of paper struggling. And, you know, this Herculean struggle beads of sweat on my brow. I'm exaggerating, but I sit there with nothing going on. And then I, an idea comes from somewhere. That's kind of the art of it. The craft is taking stuff you've put down that I promise you is bad. I promise you it's bad, but there's something good in it. There are gems hidden in it. There are good ideas couched in those phrases. Uh, so for me, probably 70%, 60-70% of rewriting is taking stuff out, simplifying, streamlining, condensing. The other part is replacing one word with another word <laughs> or finding a different way of saying something or restructuring something a little bit. So something I put at the beginning comes at the end, or something I put at the end comes at the beginning, or something that, I, that is buried in the middle comes out, or you know, there's some restructuring, but a lot of it is just refining the language. So what I did in that chapter, this is a long paragraph, which deserves to be heavily edited that I'm giving you. But this chapter, I start out with the first page of The Go-Giver, and then I walk you through everything we did to turn that into the first page of the published Go-Giver, uh, which is Worlds Apart, and which has sold over a million copies. The, the first version couldn't get in the door of a publisher, couldn't even get in the door. And if any of them had said yes to that first version, that would have been a tragedy because I promise you, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Nobody would have ever heard of it, and I wouldn't have a writing career. None of it would have happened. But with a rewritten version, million copies sold. And my goal in that book is both to inspire people about working on their craft, about getting gooder, the process of daily improvement, and also to give people the tools that that I used to go from the first version to the second version. Paragraph, end of paragraph. I, I love the, so first of all, I mean, there's so many nuggets of uh, of inspiration and, and insight in everything that you just shared but i love how you you summed it up that 22 people said no yeah. and that's why it sold a million copies yeah nicely put oh you said it even better than i did yeah that's cool that's that's true and you know that kind of gets to for me one of the secrets to being a successful writer, and you can apply this to being an entrepreneur, to being many other things, um, is how to use negative feedback, how to use good critique, qualified critique to your betterment. 
so it's so critical. It's like critical as in oxygen to breathe critical. Um, I pr- and, and I'll give you a case at point on the opposite end of the spectrum because Gover, Gover, blah, 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 blah. Go-Giver was my first successful book, my first published book. My most recent book, which is, hasn't even out yet, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, is a novel. It's my first novel, Steel Fear. We'll talk about it, I'm sure. And my first draft, which I thought was pretty much finished, was 150,000 words. And I can absolutely promise you that if we had taken that to a publisher, nobody would have touched it. It would have gone into a desk drawer and I would be doing something else right now. Uh, I, my agent and then later my editor worked with us to take that from 150,000 words to 100,000 words. We took out a third of the, of the volume, a third of the words. I mean, imagine, you know, Getting a haircut where a third of your hair is gone, what you look like, you know, before and after. Uh, so for me right now, that would actually <laughs> <laughs> with me it would be I'd be nothing left. <laughs> if they hadn't done that, the book would not have ever sold. Absolutely, it's a given. Uh, as it is, we sold it in a two book deal. It's now in development as a as a streaming TV series. Uh, you know, we got a cover quote from Lee Child, the author of the Jack Reacher books, saying um, "Instant legend." An instant classic, maybe an instant legend. And it would have been an instant slush pile, you know, a year ago if we hadn't if we hadn't done that massive rewrite. I'm just I think that's one of the things that <clears throat> that I love about about the book business in, in general is there's there's a degree of serendipity. There's a lot of uh, of artistry, but I think few people truly appreciate how much of it is the craft. It's yes, not the right place and the right time. It's about yes. doing the work. It really is. It really is. It's so true. And I, you know, this morning I just turned the last page of a book I just read by Dennis Lehane. Um, I totally dig this writer. Um, Dennis Lehane wrote, um, uh, you know, Mystic River, the Clint Eastwood movie. He wrote the novel, and he, he's a he's a premier American crime novelist. Okay. I just read a book of his, The Drop, and. and Every page is like a Rembrandt. I mean, every page you just sit there and you go, oh, my God, you just want to like roll each sentence around your mouth because it's so perfect. It's so hilarious. It's so gorgeous. The man's use of words is just poetry. And what most people don't see, what I see is I never saw his first draft, but I know what a pile of crap it was. I can tell. I opened the book, How to Write, How to Write Good. First page, I tell a story of my wife and I going to see uh, Dennis Lehane speak many, many years ago. And he talked about, he, uh, he was right in the middle of working on, a, on a, a new draft of a book. And he talked about the struggle of it and about how he said for a, for a long while, he's just writing words and doesn't know where it's going. And he said, I feel like I'm in a car in the middle of the winter out on a frozen pond. And my tires are spinning and the car is whirling and I can't get any traction. I have no idea where the fuck I'm going. This is how he described it. 
And he said, I, and I just keep going. I keep spinning the wheels. I keep giving it gas. And I don't even know what's going to happen. And then the, I, I almost know the moment that I feel the tires come over the lip of the ice and hit, hit uh, the, the, the bank of, of the pond and get some traction. And all of a sudden, I feel like, okay, this car's going somewhere. I know where I'm going. And I could be 50,000 words in. I could be 30,000 words, you know, whatever it is. And I walked out of there like I was hearing a thunderclap because I was like, this is this is the guy who wrote Mystic River. This is the guy who wrote Gone Baby Gone. Uh, this is the guy who wrote the, the Patrick Kenzie series. This is like a god of, of cr modern crime writing. And he has the same experience I have, which is I don't know what the hell I'm doing. It's it was just such an inspiration. That's also something I strove to do in that book is give people a glimpse into what what it feels like. All the part that you don't see in the published book, the part that is behind the curtain, like you're saying, the craft of it, the craft of it, and also the experience of it in that lonely room when you're you know when you're wrestling with those words in the page, and you know that there's something good in there, but you know that it hasn't quite shown up yet. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think part of it for me is that, you know, when we just talk about rewriting, it, it often sounds so tortuous and miserable and wretched. But, and honestly, for me, I love it. And I think that part of it is you need to kind of fall in love or get to the point where you fall in love with the craft of it, mm -hmm. with taking a sentence, taking a sentence that's maybe okay. And just changing a few words and having it suddenly sing. Uh, that I I get the biggest charge out of that. Um, and you know, I, I first had that experience when I was a kid and I was a cellist before I was a writer and playing the cello. Yeah. And yeah, I for years I played the cello. I was that was a pro. That was what I did my first career. And you know, for years I played, I sawed away at that cello and it sounded terrible. And the experience of playing every day, knowing it doesn't sound very good. But that there's good, there's there's music is going to come out of this thing eventually, and out of me eventually. Just making it better, making it better. If, you, if you're a tennis pro, it's the same thing. You practice the swing, and you practice the backswing, and the the practice of it, and also the joy of feeling it get incrementally better. You know, even just a little increment better. Like I said, that one sentence. All writers do is write sentences. You know, one sentence at a time. <laughs> Taking a sentence that's mediocre and making it a little better, man. See, that's why I love reading someone like Raymond Chandler or at the other end of the spectrum, Lee Child, Jack Reacher, you know, or or James Lee Burke, who has got you know, his florid, poetic writer of a crime writer, uh, sort of the opposite of Lee Child, who writes these like acerbic telegraphic sentences. But all of them, all of these amazing technicians, you can read them and you say, oh, I see what they did there. I see how in seven words of a sentence, they just went wham. And I think that's whether you're a published writer or you're just in it to write tweets or Facebook posts that where you want to get something across, some piece of yourself. To me, that's that's the key of it is to is to fall in love with the the majesty and the power of tweaking words and how they can become so powerful. It brings to mind that. Uh, Mark Twain quote was yeah. the difference between the right word and the almost right word. Yes. The difference between lightning and the lightning bug. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly, man. And it's so cool. When you open that jar and suddenly you hear lightning come out. It's like, whoa, okay, far out, far out. Lightning in a bow. Yeah, man. yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Lee Childs and, uh, and Jack Reacher, um, tell me about this awesome book that's not even out yet that's already a, a TV series. Yeah, so, you know, the book is called Steel Fear. And two things to know about that. First is we had the title before we had the book. It isn't always that way. It was that way with The Go-Giver. It was that way with Steel Fear. The second thing to know is that, um, you know, the book was – People say, how long did it take to write? It took a year and a half. Really, it took two years to write. But actually, it was 10 years. But actually, it was 25 years. So <laughs> let me explain that. It took me two years from the, from the day I started saying, okay, it's time to write the book. Uh, and I started researching. It, the story of the book is this. A disgraced Navy SEAL stalks a serial killer aboard an aircraft carrier in the midst of the Pacific Ocean. And when I began, day one, I was researching aircraft carriers. I have no military background. I never served in the Navy or any other branch of the military. I don't know. I had that at that time had never been on an aircraft carrier. That's changed since. But I began researching aircraft carriers like crazy. I dove into that world as much as I could for several months, three months, four months on end. And then started outlining and getting ideas and jotting down notes. From that point to the point that the, that the book was truly done was two years. However, Brandon, my, my former Navy SEAL sniper friend, first pitched the idea to me of this book uh, in 2009, which is when I first met him. So I met Brandon in 2009, right after the Captain Phillips thing had happened. Three Navy SEAL snipers took out three Somalian pirates. Boom, 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 like synchronized swimmers. And the whole world, remember this? Yeah. Yeah, he he wasn't Tom Hanks yet, although he would soon be. Uh, And so the whole world watched that happen on CNN and went, whoa, who are these snipers? And um, my agent, the agent of the Go-Giver at that time, was watching television, watching CNN. And they had a, a, I think it was a, a, a... I forget which guy. Anyway, one, one of the one of the CNN guys was interviewing somebody who had taught the Navy SEAL sniper course. And she turned to her sister and said, I want that guy as a client. Well, two days later, that guy walked into her office, and that was Brandon Webb. But he, after returning from Afghanistan with his uh, – it was one of the first, first uh, boots in the ground in Afghanistan after 9-11. After returning from Afghanistan, they tapped him to revamp the sniper program, the Navy SEAL sniper program. So he and a shooting buddy, a, a partner, uh, Eric uh, Davis, totally redesigned the sniper program, modernized it for the 21st century. And that revamped school produced people like Chris Kyle and Marcus Luttrell and so forth, you know, household names. So he was on CNN talking about that. And he walked into her office two days later because he said, I got a memoir I want to write, but uh, I need an agent. <laughs> She's like, ah, okay. So she wrote to me. I know. Well, they both lived in La Jolla. So the odds were not as far-fetched as it sounds, but still pretty far-fetched. Matrix. Yeah, the Matrix man. So she popped me an email and said, I know this isn't what you do. Like I was doing the go-giver and I'm like this nice leadership, you know, entrepreneur, positive thinking guy. She said, I know this isn't exactly what you do, but I thought I'd just ask if you're interested. And I read what he'd done, like a one-page shot, and I said, oh, man, I'm in. I'm doing this. 
I'm doing this. So that was his memoir. And we started corresponding in one of our very first phone calls. He said, would you ever be interested in doing a novel? And I was like, me, a novel, a military novel about a serial killer? Hell yeah. <laughs> so, so that's 10 years ago, 12 years ago. But the idea for the story came 10 years before that, 14 years before that which Brandon was on the USS Abraham Lincoln, the aircraft carrier, on, on which the, the story takes place. He was on that for six months doing a deployment in the Navy. This is before he was a sniper. He was a rescue swimmer and sonar operator. And he was on the, uh, the Lincoln. Uh, and I'm giving the genesis of the story way too much time, but it's just fun to tell. He was on that, and it was mid-90s, and it was when they had just integrated uh, females and in, women into in combatant roles on, on these naval ships. And so it was a big culture shift, a culture shock, and they were just kind of figuring out logistically how to integrate men and women on this ship for six months in the ocean. And uh, on that deployment, there was a serial sexual predator. There was this guy who would sneak into the women's showers and flip off the lights and run in and grab somebody. And they never caught him. He did it over and over, like six, seven, eight times. And they never even knew who it was. And it creeped out, of course, the entire ship. It cast this kind of pall of, of creep terror over the, the, the five, 6,000 people on the ship. Aircraft carriers like a small city, you know. Yeah. It's like the Empire State Building on its side, populated with nearly 6,000 people. So for six months. Yeah. So uh, he said that the leadership of the, of the boat was completely incapable of handling this, this, this sort of crime wave. And at the time, he thought, man, what if these were murders? <laughs> so a book was born. He carried that idea uh, until he presented it to me. And I spent the next 10 years from 2009 to 1999, uh, 2019 coming up with the hero. Who would be the main character? Who would be the guy that stalked the serial killer? And once we had that guy, uh, you know, the book took off. And you asked about, about Lee Child and Jack Reacher. So here's the thing about that. Here's the entrepreneurial part of writing. I've had people say, oh, well, you were already a you know, super well-established writer, best-selling New York Times, blah, blah, blah. So this must have been you know, really kind of easy to get the book sold. Uh-uh. Opposite. Um, because the world I've always traveled in, parables, nonfiction, business writing, it's got nothing to do with the world of novels, the world of fiction. And, the world of, and a thriller is a really exacting thing. It has to be done a certain way or it doesn't fly. And uh, uh, so it's like I was starting from scratch. Brandon and I were both starting from scratch. We did the book together. And neither of us had the chops, the history, the cred to be novelists, let alone thriller writers. So what that means is for two years, I worked my tail off on this manuscript with A, not a dime of income, and B, not a whiff of a promise or a hope even that this would ever sell, that anybody would even care. Our agent didn't see it till it was done. Um, nobody saw it but Brandon and me and my wife and a few friends. Um, so we, we honestly didn't know. Like we thought it was a good book, but will the world want it? We had no idea. Um, so the agent took it to New York. We got a two book deal with Bantam. And next thing you know, uh, my agent's writing me an email saying, Jack Reacher, I'm Jack Reacher, just Lee Child just read it, says he loves it. And uh, he's given us a cover quote. 
And it just, you know, I remember Stephen, Kel- Stephen King telling the story when he first sold the uh, paperback rights to Carrie, his first big novel. And, you know, and sink listen to listen to the words in the phone and not comprehend them and sinking to the floor and i i had a similar kind of experience like are you i had I took my phone to my wife and had to show her the email because i couldn't read it i was too choked up like and so i have heard for years that the crime writers are the nicest people which always seemed interesting to me the people who sit in their in their rooms you know, dreaming up the most horrific, <laughs> terrible crimes visited upon innocent people. <laughs> and they are the kindest, most, you know, lovely people. Oh, yeah. Lovely, well, like like Hannibal Lecter, right? You know, and, uh, it's true. I can, I can attest to that. You are a genuine <laughs> <Yeah>. person. <laughs> ah, I know I am one now. It's true. I'm one of those, one of those creatures. And it's true. It's true. You know, it's funny. Uh, of the two, of, of all the crime writers I've been reading for the past ten years, you know, Lee Child is right up there. So is Bob Crace. Robert Crace is a is a like a legend of crime writing. He used to write for Miami Vice and Hell Street Blues. I mean, the guy has an amazing resume, but he also has of crime novels, the Elvis Cole books, and he turned around and gave us this beautiful endorsement for the book. And Brad Thor gave us this beautiful endorsement for the book. And he's like. These legends of crime writing uh, uh, have have you know all come out to say, "Hey, gents, good work, good work." We're going to put our signatures on that. So, it's yeah, it's a pretty sweet experience. Sweet, I don't think begins to describe it. I think, but I'll tell you something about the book. What's having that? having said serial killer and Navy SEAL and aircraft carrier, um, it's funny when the book was finished and I looked at it. Someone said to me, uh, "So." is this a book about leadership? And I, and I thought about it and I realized I've been writing this book my whole life. Um, I just put up a blog post on my blog, the title of which is a leadership parable disguised as a crime novel, because the, the book is a bona fide thriller. It's a crime novel. It's a mystery. It's a whodunit. It's a locked room mystery with 6,000 suspects. (laughs) <laughs> the locker room is an air is a boat is a ship on the on the yeah. ocean, but it's also a, a an object lesson in leadership. And both Brandon and I have been in our different worlds, fascinated with leadership, our whole lives. Uh, my dad was a choral conductor, which is a follow the leader business. Yeah, you know. Um, Brandon's dad was an entrepreneur and businessman, and we've both been all through his military experience. He's been fascinated with great leaders and he's had his share of horrible leaders and of the impact that has, uh, to me, when you go into business, when you walk into a store or you, you get on the phone to customer service, or you have some interaction by, by, you know, online, you have an experience, an interaction with. I'm sorry, you're, you're cutting out, John. Sorry, did I cut out? You did. Yeah. yeah, it's my, I was getting a phone call. The experience you have is basically flows from the leadership, you know? Yeah. Good or bad. So that's what Steel Fear is really all about. There's a, there's a terrible captain and there's a wonderful captain. And there's a ter- and there's a wonderful chief, master chief, and there you know there there are like six, seven, eight different leader people in leadership positions, and they all have their own unique profile, 
and they all have the unique ramifications. And in in this case, it leads to it leads to murder and mayhem. <clears throat> um, so, two things that I think I I want to to jump on in in there. One is that I wholeheartedly agree that honestly everything comes back to to leadership. If if I have a bad experience in, in a restaurant, John, I, I rarely complain because I know that nine times out of 10, that it really comes, but even whenever it's not the leader's fault, it's still the leader's fault because it's their responsibility. <laughs> the right people in the right places for having set the right expectations, for having, um, having the right tolerances, um, it's piece of data, a research after research, data after data that I've come across talks about how, you know, one person, the, the leader can make, it can be the, the difference of an entire company. I, I love the, the story about the, was it the GM plant? or a Ford plant, it was a, one of the big three automakers that had a plant out in California that was just terrible. Um, I, I, they interviewed one guy and he was talking about how um, you know, they, they hated management so much. They would put empty beer bottles in the, in the door panels, um, oh. the cars. They would put a strip of bolt and not worry about it. And it was just, it was, it was awful. Yikes. Uh, so they, they finally shut the, uh, shut the plant down. And then a few years later, they did a, a joint partnership with, um, it was Toyota or Nissan, I think Toyota. And so John, they, they rehired the exact same workers. <laughs> yeah. They were in the exact same plant, exact same machines. Uh, the cars had probably maybe, you know, updated, maybe they were doing, uh, you know, the, the, the latest Taurus or Corolla or whatever it was instead of the previous model. But because the leadership was different, because they had a different view on what it was to be uh, a worker and a contributor, John, the... Uh, it completely turned the, the plant around. They were one of the, not only were they one of the largest capacity producers and they you know, far, far out stripped the production capacity they had before, but the quality was top notch. Yeah. Same yeah. Workers, same machines, same yeah. plant, same everything. Yeah. Leadership is like a rudder, rudder on a ship. It's just, it's so important. And, you know, uh, I mentioned that in relation to this book to make a point about writing too, which is, you know, I didn't, it's not like I sat down or either of us sat down to say, let's, let's write a book about leadership or ha, we're writing a novel, but let's cleverly insert lessons about, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just that that's something that fascinates us both. And, and the point there is that I think you don't, always know what you're writing about or say it differently. You're writing about something. Whenever you're writing something, you're writing about something, but you're also writing about something else. 
and that and that something else is going to be something that is part of you is your experience. You know, you don't you don't necessarily bring the literal facts of an experience you've had into a story or into a business book. Um, and by the way, business books, they're stories. All the, you know, every, every good, successful, popular, or, or you know, or, or in, engaging nonfiction book is a story. You know, uh, every good blog post is a story. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It has an element of mystery. It has an element of adventure. It has an element of discovery. It has a hero, which may not be a person. I mean, you look at a book, at a book like The Tipping Point or Blink. The hero isn't a person. It's an idea. You know, it's a concept. Yeah. <laughs> tipping point is simple. The, 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 the hero is little things make a big difference. Uh, you know, all Gladwell's books have that kind of very simple idea that is the protagonist of this adventure story. And, it, and it's always a mystery because he brings in all this fascinating research that as you peel away the layers of it, reveals the heart of this. Oh, it's just like a detective story. And it was the cook who did it. Uh, so it, all engaging books, articles, pieces of writing are stories at their heart. The principles of stories apply. And when you're writing your stories, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, you bring yourself to them, which is good. You should. And again, not necessarily the, bi the biographical facts of your life or your experiences, but you bring the stuff that has made deep impressions on you. Um, there, it's always in there, as it should be. That's what makes it yours. That's what makes it rich. That's what makes the reader resonate with it. Your book is never just about the content. It's never just about the topic. And it's certainly never just about the style or the craft of it, although that's the vehicle. The book is also about you. Um, it's about you, intentionally or not. Um, so I, th I think that's – I think that writing – for writing to be effective, whether it's a book or an, or, or an email to a friend, it, it asks of you the same thing that I think acting in a movie would ask or dancing on a stage, which is that you just take a breath, take your mind off yourself and, and, and be authentic, you know, because you, you, are, you are writing, yeah, from your topic, writing maybe from your outline, writing from your material, but you're also writing from your heart and soul. And that matters. See, um, I said in 2014, I think, um, I, uh, I self-published my, my own book on how to write business books. And one of the main things that I've discovered working with so many business authors over the years, one of the biggest things is to just get out of your own way to not worry about how it's supposed to be, to yeah. not worry about how other people are going to think about it and how they're going to receive it and how it sounds. Right. But to, I, I call it the, the critic and, and the muse. Yeah. The critic um, later to help you make it sound good or at least gooder. Yes. But the beginning, so... I love your your characters characterization the art and the the art and the craft for for my mind uh, the the art is the muse like these ideas that you're you're not really sure where they come from right you're on just what whatever it is 
And you can't really focus on the craft until you have until you have something to, to work with. And that's why the critic has to stay in his, in my mind, the critic is, is a man that probably says something about my psyche. Has to stay <laughs> in the corner and uh, to allow the, the muse to, to speak. And there are, it breaks my heart, it really does, that there are so many great books that want to be written, but whose authors they they can't get past their their fear, yeah. Uh, the uncertainty, the the overwhelm in the beginning. They can't just relax and let and just enjoy the the ride. And who knows where it's going to go? Yeah. So yeah, you'll never get anywhere unless you at least start making some momentum. You might be. I love that uh, that that analogy of of the car on, on, on the, the ice. ice flipping around and you know, spinning in circles and it's out of control. Oh my God, what's going to happen? But then you finally hit the snow bank and oh, oh, okay. I feel like I've got a little bit of something under my feet. I feel like we've got a little traction. Yeah. Another analogy. And I use, I use a million analogies with myself to talk myself because a lot of it is, is your own head game. Another analogy I, I use uh, uh, is that your the heart of your, of the piece you're writing is like the, inside of a magic forest, like in a fairy tale. There's this magical forest, which you're trying to get into. But on the the outside, on the edge of the forest, it's all like brambles and it's a thicket of a mess. And you have to hack your way through that to get to the heart of the forest where it's all pine needle floor and this magical copse and, and, and you know, C-O-P-S-E, you know, a magical meadow or something. And it's in there, but you got to take your machete and, hack, machete and hack your way through this, you know, bramble patch. And the bramble patch is the words you put on the page. So don't worry about whether it's any good or not. Of course it isn't. Of course, it's not supposed to be. A successful first draft is a first draft that you got onto a piece of paper, period. That's success. That's uh, it's not supposed to be good. It's supposed to just be like a signpost pointing the way toward good. And then you, know, then you let the critic in the door. You said keep him in the corner. I don't even let him in the room, man. It's like, <laughs> you're out of here. <laughs> Go down to a local bar and get drunk or something. I don't want you around. <laughs> you know? we'll, we'll text you when we need you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll send you a text. Watch your phone. <laughs> right on. I love your description. Yeah, the art, the uh, the you said the muse and the and the critic. That's it. That is what it is. I think probably the biggest secret to writing successfully is knowing how to recognize those two people. And keep them separate. Keep the, and, and know which one you're activating. I have two different places in my office where I actually sit um, for those two activities. I don't even sit in the same place. Oh, you tell me about that once. There's there's your desk. Yeah. There's the chair, capital C. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Chair's where I go when I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes says... Uh, when you see me staring out the window, that's when I'm working. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's, I should. I feel like I should put that in a piece of paper and paste it on my wall. <laughs> um, John, this has, well, it's always enjoyable anytime we have any kind of, of interaction. This particular conversation has been not only enjoyable, but um, insightful and informative. I've, 
sincerely appreciate you uh, taking the time to share so much of your experience and and uh, and know-how and to be, uh, you know, in business, uh, one of the, the buzzwords now is uh, is being vulnerable. But I, I think business is just catching up with mm-hmm. what it means to be human. And being human is that we let down our masks and our facades, that we don't try to pretend that we're superhumans or that we're perfect. Just like... Um, just like Dennis uh, talking about, you know, with Mystic River and the other books that he had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. Being that, just that real gave you such, I want to say confidence, but relief, hope, something in, in that area to say, oh, if he experiences the same thing I do, then maybe this is okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you've done today. And I appreciate that. Right on. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you, brother. Love doing it. It shows.